So this evening, uh, I want to talk about something uh, my teacher, Master Cousin, uh, the son master of the temple where I stayed in Korea, Song Gwangsan, something every year we had a talk on this uh, because it was very dear to his heart and he really thought this was essential uh, quality to cultivate. So every year we had a discourse on the paramis. And what is interesting with the paramitin, so the thing is that you have these qualities which are considered essential in the practice. So what I want to look at them now is more in terms of the practice on retreat. And possibly I might keep the same, but the last talk of the retreat could be about in daily life. So to see that there is some application of them on the retreat itself here. And then in a way you would have a kind of a wider view of the application in daily life, but we'll see how it goes. So the thing with the qualities, which in Sanskrit is called paramita, and in Sanskrit you generally have six. So in Korea, they very much took the framework of the six paramita. But my teacher, Master Cousin, liked to have seven paramita, so already he was a little creative, and he added one, so that then you had seven, one for each day of the week. And that's what he would really, he was recommended to the lay people in terms of their daily life. But of course, you also have the parami, which that is a Pali language from the time of the Buddha, and there you have ten. And actually, if you look at the two list, you have five which are the same, and five which are different. So the one I'm considering today is what's called the six parami plus one. <laughs> because I think the one my teacher added is a very interesting one. So parami, paramita, the term itself, uh, you might have heard of them in different ways. You might have heard of them as the perfection. And so often the idea is that we have to perfect those quality. But actually it's more that this quality enables us to flourish as a human being. Or you might have heard of them as transcendent, because often it's they're referred to as going beyond. They're the quality which helps you to go beyond. And again, it's not so much that you go beyond some other place, but they might help you to go beyond, to let go of, to dissolve the three poison of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And so the seventh quality I want to talk about today, the paramita, is, and I put them on the board, so you don't have to memorize them. So you have dana, you might have heard this word before, which is generosity. Then you have sila, Catherine mentioned it already, ethical guideline. Then you have viria, you might have heard about effort, courage. 
very useful on a retreat. Then you have Santi, which is patience. Then you have Pracha, Pranya, which is wisdom. Then Dhyana, which is meditation. And then the one my teacher added was Upaya, skillful means. And so let's look at these qualities in terms of the retreat. So the first one is generosity. And first, I'd like to read you something. This is a poem from an ancient Chinese poet, Han Shan, called Mountain. And that's what he says. Formerly, I was extremely poor and miserable. Every night, I counted the treasures of others. But today I have thought the matter over and decided to build a house of my own. Digging at the ground, I have found a hidden treasure, a pearl as pure and clear as crystal. I love that line. Every night I counted the treasures of others. And in a way, generosity is helping us to see. Often we have this feeling of lack, of missing something. Often we have a tendency to judge ourselves, to judge others. And as you are sitting here today, did you have possibly the thought, they're really sitting better than me. You know, oh, this one, he sits so well. You know. I wish I could sit like that. Or you look at Tony and you think, wow, he really is sitting well. The two old ladies, forget it. <laughs> you know, we passed it. And it's interesting, that kind of feeling of comparing ourselves to others. And to me, a generous mind, a generous heart on a retreat is really giving ourselves time and space. Time and space to ourselves, time and space to others. And so to kind of like, kind of notice, kind of generosity is really there is another word in the sutta you find a lot, liberality. The fact that there is this kind of like openness. So in a way, like often the Buddha used to say, I am not close-fisted. I am sharing all my dharma with you. And in a way, can we be a bit the same, not close-fisted? When we sit in meditation, noticing do we go in certain groove of criticism, oh, I am not good enough, or if only I should, they should, and kind of, this is what is the beauty of a retreat. It's not a half day, it's not a day long. It's actually four full days. So in a way, you have the time. And to me, generosity is very much about giving time and space. 
kind of having this generous heart toward ourselves, toward others. And it's in a way slightly, and I think that's what the retreat, the meditation is about, is uh, so that we view from an equal perspective. So that it's not often we kind of a little close-fisted, we're a little self-centered. And in a way, generosity is actually, in a way, recognizing that all of us here right now are generous. Generous in giving this retreat to ourselves. By coming, you also help others to be here, helping us to be here, helping Gaia House to be here. So it's kind of this whole circle of generous intention. And it's very much open-ended. And I think to me, generosity, in a way, is about aspiration, not expectation. So being careful when we aspire to be here, aspire to practice, aspire to cultivate wisdom and compassion, but it doesn't mean immediately we'll be 150% wise or calm or clear. And that's kind of like the generosity is giving ourselves the time to find ourselves here. Then you have Sila. And recently a friend of ours saw Sila, ethical guideline. You hear a lot about them. But what does it mean on a retreat? Because I'm on a retreat, you know, generally uh, it is a fairly ethical situation. You know, if it, even if you want to, it's fairly ethical. You're in silence, you don't have any weapons, as far as I know, and you don't kind of, you know, generally people come very few goods when they come here. They don't come with all their jewels and diamonds. So, and recently a friend was saying that actually Sila, the guidelines, is agreed boundary and limit. And he was saying it's like we all agree this is a baseline. This is something in a way we kind of decide in terms of kind of myself and others. This is kind of not like a precept, it's more like an ardent wish. This is a limit, this is what we all agree that we won't go beyond. We don't want to hurt other. We don't want to take advantage of other or of myself. And so I think in terms of ethical guidelines is, again, you have a fairly peaceful life here. But what about when you sit? Are you, are you in a peaceful, non-harmy state? This is interesting. What is going on in your mind? Are you plotting revenge? You know, like you sit there, yes, yes, what is this, what is this? Just listening, presence, yes, yes, yes. Five years ago, they said this. I mean, how could they say this, really? I'm going to meet them in a month. I'm going to show them. And then you kind of plot revenge. 
that I would say is not cultivating sila. Or if you give yourself a hard time, it's the same. I think it's very important when the Buddha talks about all sentient beings, we are included. So I think ethical guideline is about, in a way, how do we care for ourselves and others? And what is it we will not go beyond? Because we respect ourselves, because we respect others. So seeing, in a way, the guideline as boundaries. And then too, when we sit in meditation, I mean, that's what personally meditation helps me at the beginning very much to think, hmm, do I want to continue here? Do I kind of want to keep writing this email which I make more and more nasty because the person this, that, and that? And what actually I found myself when I have to write kind of certain difficult email, you see, you start, and yes, and you did this, and you did that, and you're not a good person, and this, and that. And then I think, no, 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 no. Then second one, a little less kind of this harmfulness. Third one, generally by the fifth one, I have got what I call creative engagement when I can address a situation, but there is not that harmfulness within it. So in a way, could the retreat, in a way, be a way to cultivate within ourselves harmlessness? What would it mean for each of us to be harmless in our mind, in our body, in our heart, to ourselves and others. And there is this beautiful short poem by Ryokan, a Japanese uh, poet from long ago. In the morning, bowing to all. In the evening, bowing to all. Respecting others is my only duty. Isn't it beautiful, that line? Respecting others is my only duty. And then you have Viria, and this is something you encounter as soon as you arrive on a retreat. Viria, effort, courage. And I think what we have to see is that generally we equate effort with effect. So the way we try to meditate, we try to practice, and time to time we kind of like checking. Is this working? You know, if I cultivate friendliness, how friendly I am now. If I cultivate samadhi, how kind of in deep meditative state am I now? If I ask a question, how deep is my questioning? And I think we have to be careful that effort is not the same thing as effect. So you might have immediate effect, but possibly not. 
So effort, I think, has different aspects. And what we have to see is that effort is not like when we sit in meditation, that we suddenly receive a very heavy package and we have to bring it to the doorstep to a table. So if we receive a really heavy package and think, hmm, what's that? But then it's so heavy. And so you kind of, okay, I'm kind of, mm, tighten, tighten. Oh. And then I put it on the table and then I can open it, see what is there. But if you come to meditation like this, yes, 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 you know, this heavy, yes, meditation is, it's really, I have to, if you have to tense up, it's going to be so much more difficult because it's kind of like using the body to force the meditation instead of in a way kind of using the body as a stabilizing point or as a grounding point. It's actually using the body to tense. And this is kind of a habit we often have. I know for myself, I used to sit in meditation and then I used to tense my jaw. Kind of like if tensing my jaw would kind of make me meditate better. There would be more questioning. So I would be there. And then I would feel my jaw tensing and then I would relax them. So this is something we need to look at in terms of cultivating efforts is how do we come to this essential quality, which is going to give us energy. But also to see that effort at different aspects. At time, you could say it's effortless. At times, we actually don't have to do anything. And so we just sit there, we just walk, we are in the queue, we are eating, we are walking, we are resting, and we, you could say naturally, you could say we are awake, naturally we are present, we have that quality of calmness, of brightness, of being really alive. You could say without grasping, without rejecting anything. And we have to see that too is virya, it's effort, but it's effortless effort. But it cannot be there all the time, that effortless effort. And so this is where we have to see at times there is that natural flowing on a retreat and at other time it's like what is it that's going to help me here? I might feel a little agitated, so I might bring some calming. I might feel a little sleepy, so I might want to brighten. So in a way, I think there is time to time, there is what I would call cultivation of tools. That part of the effort is recognizing that we're not trying to do the same thing all the time to the same degree. But we are an organism which will have more energy, less energy, 
and which have different conditions. So at times, it's a little effort is about, hmm, what would be helpful here? Maybe to open the eyes, maybe to do listening meditation, maybe to come back to the breath, maybe to come back to friendliness, or maybe to bring a little more alertness in the questioning. So there is kind of that, in a way you could say, effort as cultivating tools. And then I think there is effort as in over time developing something. So in a way kind of that steadiness, that courage of doing this. So in a way having that energy of doing this, of practicing, the energy of being aware. Because I think one of the things that is a little difficult is we like comfort. Kind of this is something we like to be comfortable. And so we can go a little bit so that we can be a little bit uncomfortable, but only up to a point. And this is in a way a retreat which is a little challenging in terms of the schedule, in terms of kind of doing this first day, second day, third day, fourth day. And in a way, having that courage to start, having the courage to continue. That kind of what they call the long, enduring mind. And then you have patience. And in a way, to me, what is patience about is saying, there is time. And I think this is actually in terms of the Korean people, this is very appropriate. One of the things they say the most in Korea is pali pali. Quick, quick, quick. Things have to be quick. <laughs> and so Master Kuzan often pointed this out, the patience, taking the time. And in a way, kind of like looking a little bit of our expectation by now, this should be like this. By now, this should be like that. And so patience is kind of like a, lo a kind of really having the patience. It takes time. So we might have moments. I remember, I mean, in Korea, you sit three months, 10 hours a day, and that's for starter. This is a minimum you can do. And generally, you sit 50 minutes and you walk 10 minutes. And the only time I ever did this in England, nobody could walk afterwards. So we, kind of, so we thought, we'll go for the 30 minutes. It'll be more manageable. And so we would do this twice, three months in the year. And every time it was the same. The first two weeks were so difficult. The first two weeks, the body, the mind, the pain, and sitting there and doing the hours. Every day was like, oh, oh. It's kind of like, oh. And then after two weeks, for two months, it was like, ah, oh, I'm going to do this forever after. 
I don't want to stop. It's so wonderful. It's so fantastic. And then the last two weeks, let's go. <laughs> and I think on a retreat like here, I mean, it's a short retreat, but it's a bit the same. Often the first day is a little, oh, getting used to the body, getting used to the mind. And then, ah, we set up. So we kind of to see that there is a, a little kind of bit of a rhythm to the retreat. Also a little rhythm to the schedule. Because that's what I experienced in Korea. You know, you would sit 10 hours. And I was never a great sitter. I used to sit on the floor then. And sometime by the end of the evening, oh, the pain, the pain I had. But what was interesting is that Sometime I could look into the pain and it became empty. And sometime I sat there with patience. Okay, okay. Knowing tomorrow it's gone. The, in the morning I would have no pain. And then in the evening, here it comes again. <laughs> and so in a way, having the patience to see that it's not all the time the same. So, you know, we're being patient with the body, patient with the mind, patient with the heart. Another time I was so fired up. This was so interesting. Sometimes you're so fired up. I'm going to practice so hard better than anybody else. And that's what I did, you know. Everybody got up at three, went to bed at nine. I got up at two, went to bed at 10. I sat all day long and nothing, nothing. For two weeks, nothing, no questioning, no nothing. But I mean, you don't have much choice. You're there, so you go through kind of patience, patience. And then finally, after two weeks, it just opened up. And the questioning was just there by itself. So in a way, it's kind of having the patience with the difficult time. And then enjoying, in a way, when it's much easier. Then you have prajna. And prajna, this is wisdom. And so, what we have to see that when we are on a retreat, we're actually cultivating what's called the three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so wisdom is essential. And what is wisdom about? Actually, wisdom, one way we can apply it on a retreat, is just by being aware of change. Just by, in a way, a retreat allows us to develop the wisdom of being aware of change, of knowing change. And so this is what I would really encourage you, to really be aware through the day, through a sitting, to see, oh, the mind change, the heart change, the sensation change. And really, in a way, the retreat, the silence, 
allows us to really be aware that things change. It's what I call the gift of change. And so at one level, we are not stuck. Because at some point, it will change. And so, of course, sometimes it changes quickly, and sometimes the change takes time. And in a way to really know that, so that when we have a difficult time, we know that it can change. This, I think, is so important because often we have a tendency to permanentize. It's going to last forever. But generally things can't last forever. Nothing lasts forever. So just in a way, can we meet this change? Can the fact that we are on retreat, we can take the time that we meet the change, we see the change. So in a way, we flow with the change. And then we can take that later on in daily life, which I think is really the wisdom of change, can so help us when we feel stuck. That it be if we have a painful sensation, or if we have painful emotion, or if we have some difficult thought or difficult conditions. Because if we have this wisdom of change, then we don't feel so stuck, and then we can creatively engage. This is kind of the two go together. Also, with wisdom, there are different types of wisdom. You have your own wisdom. I think this is very important. When you come on a retreat, you're not tabula rasa, you know, but that actually each of you already have your own wisdom. Then there are the wisdom of others. So other people sharing their wisdom, that it be us sharing our wisdom, that it be in the small group, each of you sharing your wisdom. And then you have what we would call experiential wisdom, when actually our minds becomes clearer. And I think in order to have that wisdom, then we need to be less sticky. And this is something we can explore in a way. How sticky are we? There is a sound, there is a soul, there is a sensation, there is a feeling. Can I experience it without, in a way, by grasping at it, making it mine? And it's going to be like this, it's going to be like that, it's going to last, or it should not last, or whatever it is. This is interesting because we are on a retreat, you're kind of really, I hope, feeling safe and supported. Hopefully nobody is giving you a hard time. And then you're sitting there, and suddenly, a memory comes, or suddenly something from the future, or sometimes just a word, sometimes just a 
kind of like a sensation passed through us. You see, before I gave the talk, before I came here to give this talk, after I had rested a bit on my bed, I got up from the bed and I felt like, Whoa. I'm a little tired. And then, feeling a little tired, I could feel that little, do you think you really can give a talk? Kind of just that little goblin coming up. Aren't you too tired? And me, not really. I can do it. I might feel tired now, but doesn't mean I'm going to feel more tired later or I the tiredness will stop me from doing this or that I will be tired forever after. But just at times, of course, we feel tired, we feel confused, we might feel agitated, or whatever it might be. And so can we bring that presence, that being aware of it, anyway, not so grasping at it, but, oh, that's what it feels like. And to me, this is a question I often ask myself. How long is this going to last? So in a way, the, the wisdom of change. And then you have Diana. So that's meditation. And so meditation what I think is so important is that, as I mentioned at the beginning, that we be careful not to, you could say, get stuck on a technique. That it be questioning, that it be the breath, that it be mindfulness, that it be open awareness, that it be noting, that it be body sweeping. There are so many ways to meditate. But what really struck me when I was in Korea, I mean, very simple, the practice tomorrow, I will explain it a little more. But I mean, you could not have a practice which is simpler than that. You sit in meditation and you just ask, what is this? And that's all you have to do. In a way, so they're very simple. And there, I mean, my teacher would never, ever talk about mindfulness or breath or body sweeping or noting or anything of that nature. But what he talked about again and again and again was song song jok jok. When we practice, we develop together equally brightness and calmness. And then when I left Korea, I came to live in England and everybody was doing mindfulness inside. And then I kept hearing about Samatha and Vipassana. And I thought, but that's the same. Actually, this is the same principle. And that's why I realized that actually, before we look at any given technique, which might suit certain number of people, but not all people, all the time, let's look at what do we do when we meditate? What are the basic 
principle. And the basic principle is this too. Bright, bright, calm, calm. Samatha vipassana. So it's really one thing we, we all have those quality already of being able to anchor, to focus, of being able to inquire, to question, to explore. However, often people will say, oh, I can't concentrate. But if something happens to you, you can't stop thinking about it. I think everybody has a huge power of concentration. So it's not like we cannot concentrate, because if we, we do this all the time, somebody does something to us, we can't stop thinking about them. Talk about concentration, like you really focused. You don't think about anything else. So in a way, we have that ability, but here we want to train it in a different way. We want to cultivate what I call anchoring, so that there is this stability, there is this kind of little, very much like the image of a boat. You have a boat, there is an anchor, and the anchor allows the boat not to get lost, and the anchor allows the boat not to hurt the boat. And so when we sit in meditation, that's what we're trying to do, to anchor ourselves in the moment, but not to be fixed, but to have some movement within it. So we're not trying to stop thought, feeling, or anything like that, but we're trying to be here to a certain degree. Because in a way, what the difficulty with a thought appearing, or a sensation appearing, or a feeling appearing, or word appearing is because we stick to it and then we reduce our attention to that. So in a way, everything disappears. But here, what you can notice on a retreat is that when you come back to the breath, to the body, to the sound, to the question, you don't just come back to that you come back to the whole experience in the moment. And that's what sound are so beautiful. Because you sit here, I don't know if you noticed this morning, we were sitting here, and then we could hear the bird. And every time you heard the bird, you were anchored. You were here. And so we can hear the bird, at the same time as we can question. And so we can think of focus more as kind of being, for example, focused on the question, what is this, but in the foreground, but within a wide open awareness. And in the background, everything arise and pass away. And then time to time, up, this takes us here, this takes us there, and then up, we come back to the question. And when we come back to the question, we come back to the whole moment. So what is beautiful in the anchoring we try to do is that it's focused, but there is that openness within it, 
there can be movement. That I think is very important. And to see that the focus is not there to stop the thought, but the focus is to help us to bring back the thought to the creative functioning. I mean, one thing you can do in terms of meditation during this week, how many original thoughts are you going to have? How many thoughts you have never, never, never had before? I would say most of the time you have thought you have had before. And in a way, this is what repetition is about. This is what this habit is about. And so in a way, whenever we come back to the question, or to the breath, or to the sound, we're actually bringing this to its creative function of thinking, feeling, sensing, relating. So we're dissolving the habituation. That's what anchoring is about. And then the questioning, the exploring, is about actually using the brightness of the mind. So that the practice is not just about being calm, but the practice is also using the brightness of the mind. So that in a way we can bring that clarity to what is going on now. And in a way the anchor helps to have a little less agitation and we can be clearer, but also the clarity can make us less agitated. So it's not one is better than the other. And I would say what one of the beauty of the questioning is that you practice the two together. But we'll talk more about this tomorrow. And then the last one, and this is the one my teacher would suggest to make seven for a week, was upaya, skillful means. And so this is first looking at the other parami, paramita. All these quality, they complement each other. And so at times, we need to bring more effort. At times, we might need to bring more patience. At times, we could bring more generosity. And more generosity could bring more ethical guidelines, and sometimes it's interesting to see how they connect. Generosity could bring more patience. If you feel more generous, you might be more patient with somebody. So again, seeing how the six quality can be cultivated together, and also at different times. But upaya is also about adaptability, flexibility. It's really about, personally I think, part of it is us becoming not only aware of ourselves, but aware of others. So we are equally aware of self, equally aware of others, equal concern for self and others, and then we can adapt. We can not see everything through my own eyes, but see things from other people's eyes, 
other people's point of view, other people's situation. And I think in a way, being in silence helps us a little with that too. Because we can connect with others in a different way. Kind of like people on the path together. And in a way treating everyone equally for where they are. And so I think this is so important. When we are all together. It's funny the first day. How sometimes, not everybody, but some people kind of, or that person, ooh. He put too much food on his plate. Or that one, oh, he walked too fast. Or that one, it's interesting. Kind of suddenly, they should not be doing this. Or you turn to yourself, oh, I made a mistake, I should not have done this, or I should not have done that. But can we bring this generosity in treating ourselves and others equally? with that open heart, but also that creative heart, that flexibility. To me, upaya is very much about how can we creatively, wisely engage with what arises in any given moment. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Yes, that's an idea. I mean, there was um, a teacher in Korea I used to visit. And he said, you know, you can wake up in the morning, you ask what is it once, and then he stay with you with the whole day. So actually what we're trying to do is develop more like a sensation of questioning. So you don't have to say the word. So the word are just kind of, you could say nearly like an evocation. Kind of, what is this? And what is more important than the word is that sensation without the word. Again, I think, we use this question because it kind of we can use it in a way which seems to work, but you don't have to stay with that question. You know, if kind of there is other word which might evoke, uh, one can also, of course, use other words. And then tomorrow I'll talk more about the kind of the technique, the technicality of it. Behind. Again. You see, I think, um, I mean, when I went to, to Korea and became a nun there, uh, if it's very important to see. Uh, my experience of being a nun in Korea uh, was that um, there was no difference between monks and nuns, and they live in different places, and they did the same thing in terms of the practice and meditation. Of course, you have some people who want to kind of, you know, there was a temple uh, where uh, you had uh, some monks who practiced, they did not sleep 
others practice four hours of sleep, and then the regular guys kind of practice six hours of sleep. But I know also nuns who did a non-sleep week for a week, because that's what you do in December in Korea. And then they liked it so much, they continued for another week. So I think what we have to see is that there are these forms. And I think why the form continued is because enough people found them valuable. I know for myself to do this for 10 years was really, I mean, I feel so lucky, so privileged to have been able to do that. At the same time, for many different reasons, not everybody can do that, find the time, go there, thing of that nature. And so that's why when we do this retreat, although it's in the same spirit, it's not in the same way. We only do this for five days and we only sit for 30 minutes. We don't get up at three o'clock in the morning because we, we, I find that although I experience that life and I love that life and within that context, it was actually easy to do if that's what you wanted to do. I think it's very important to see that nobody forced you to be there. Nobody forced you to stay there. There is no door, there is no gate, you can leave any time, you're not obliged to be there. So in a way, if you do this, what you could call strict regime, is because you want to do it. It's because you find it very valuable to do that. But of course, why you have a place like Gaia House is because then people who don't have so much time then they can come for a week, they can come for four days, and then we adapt to different public. But you see, my experience with my teacher, uh, Master Cousin, was that he had many awakening, but all his life he practiced. To the end, to the last day of his life, he wanted to be kind of sitting in meditation. I remember traveling with him in train, in planes, he would sit in meditation, but because nobody forced him to do it. You know, and he would say to me, in the plane. So he's sitting like this in the plane. And I'm like, reading the paper, I'm so tired. He said, hey, you should meditate. And I said, oh, no, 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 not now. <laughs> so in a way, his inspiration did not inspire me, force myself to do it. So I think, there are different methods, there are different styles. And of course, nowadays, I have also friends who do very easy style. And this can be suitable for some people and not suitable for others. To me, this is what I learned teaching meditation for many years, that not one method will be suitable for everybody all the time. And one can one consider oneself lucky as a teacher if what you do suits 60% of the people. And I think, you know, the, the other, they can do it in a different way. So I think I have a middle way approach. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.